Season 15, episode 4. Yes, that's right. This is not about the Men's Cricket World Cup in India. It's everything but that. I'm Adam Collins. Jeff Lemon is in Lucknow, I think. Is that right? Lucknow. Let's have luck now. Let's not have luck later. Um, (laughs) Although when people wish you luck and they don't specify what kind, I think that's always a bit dangerous because you could have luck right now, but it might not be the kind that you want. And I think we will talk about the World Cup a little bit. Let's be honest. We're not going to get through an entire show without mentioning it. But largely, largely this will be as far from it as we can get. Yeah, what I was keen to do, and I, I, I flagged this up in the interview with Louis Cameron from cricket.com.au and SEN Cricket with us as well, Jeff, was that we don't spend as much time discussing the Shield as we do the county championship. So I thought we'd do a mm. bit of a corrective on that by starting out as we mean to go on, getting a better feel for players who are in that comp who aren't necessarily in Australian contention. And of course, the, the 50 over cup's been running side yep. by side with the start of the Shield. So lots of stuff there in, shall we, segment two of the show today. Mm-hmm. And you know, we are, people could rightly say that we're traitors. They could say we're national traitors, we're class traitors. We are. Oh, you're off gallivanting around with your English friends and talking about what Warwick is doing, and not talking about the good, hard bootstrap stuff of Australian domestic cricket, where it's all about, I don't know, recalling fondly the times that. Jimmy Ma yelled at someone for an hour. That's apparently the fields in which Australian cricket was grown. And, and so we will pay it its due respect today. Yeah, it's never been anything personal. Like I've been a Shield obsessive through my life. It's just proximity that I live here and I'm absorbed, uh, well, consumed by um, English cricket for so much of my life. Mm. But, um, uh, but um, yes, it doesn't mean that we get a get-out-of-jail free card on, on that one. So we'll be into domestic cricket later on. We've had WNCL action Jeff, with one of our faves, Amanda Jade Wellington, this weekend. We're not going to do a segment on that. We're going to wait one more week and do a more comprehensive conversation around the women's domestic game. But Amanda Jade's been in good nick. Yes, uh, she she's she's on top of the podium. She has become South Australia's leading wicket taker in the WNCL competition, which goes back to what ninety six. I mean, you you've got a, a pretty comprehensive body of work in terms of the competition running under that name, and there was a. a a previous one day competition as well so at the moment up to 106 wickets at 23 for for South Australia she was on a hat trick as she went past it so she the, the first wicket of what might have been a hat trick uh, got her past that record then she took another one next ball didn't quite finish off the third which would have been a hell of a way to, to get there but wonderful to see a player who I wish were featuring for the national team more often but who's still doing tremendous work there and around the world we saw her having a ball in, in the CPL recently in the Caribbean and taking a, a stack of wickets over there and still bowling some absolutely ludicrous stuff as she did when she appeared on the Big Bash scene all those years ago. She's everywhere, Willow. I had a couple of weeks where we were spending a lot of time together during fair break this year where she performed really well for the Warriors. She was in England for the uh, 100. She played the Australia Ace stuff there too. So, yeah, she's out of favour clearly with selectors now, although not for nothing that she was playing for Australia A against England. But as I've said to her repeatedly, Time on your side. Wrist spinner, 
you know, most wrist spinners do their best work in their 30s, spinners full stop. So she just needs to be there and thereabouts and there'll be a, a change in administration one day, there'll be a change mm -hmm. in thinking and they'll want the leggy who can turn it square and rip it across a right-hander, which we've been watching her do. As you say, since that first season of the Big Bash, gosh, it's eight seasons ago, we've been um, watching her do her thing. Took a wicket with her first ball in international cricket as well. Mignon Dupria, maybe interviewing mm -hmm. her about that in 2016. So well played, Wello. Yeah, not too much to deal with on the World Cup. That's mostly happening on the dailies. But just thought it was like, yeah, we're zooming out. There's been a lot of chat around, is this the final men's 50-over World Cup? That question has been posed. Look, it probably won't be because the, the TV rights have been sold Money. for the next edition in South Africa and Zimbabwe. But it might be the last meaningful one. I mean, who knows what one-day cricket looks and feels like in, in four years from now. The game is changing so rapidly, uh, scheduling, uh, the crunch of T20 franchise tournaments, mm. where international cricket splices in, the will of those who run most of the game, which effectively are the IPL owners. Um, I know that it's in India right now, and that's a great thing in terms of interest from Indian fans and so on. And, and this format means a lot to India based on what happened in 1983 and 2011. But it does feel kind of precarious. And thus, you know, my impression or my instinct is that, like, mm. let's celebrate these seven weeks. Let's make the absolute most of these seven weeks because it may be the case that in the future, the best that we get are kind of, you know, like T20 World Cups, which run over two and a half weeks or maybe a champion's trophy with eight teams. Like, you know, mm. the expanded 14-team World Cup four years from now that we so desperately want to be a success. I don't think it's as clear-cut as it will be, just the, the same as what it is in planning right now. Well, also that that next World Cup is planned to be in South Africa, who have been playing well here at this tournament, but there's a that degree of precariousness around South African international cricket altogether. If yep. if the ICC were going to dick over a host country, you know they wouldn't pull a World Cup from India a couple of years ahead of time, but they might pull one from South Africa. If they were going to do it to anybody, that's the country that they would. Maybe them or Bangladesh. If, you know, if if they somehow manage to to jag the rights, um, that they'll you know they get some smaller and shorter tournaments occasionally, Bangladesh. But generally, it's a shared job. So I, I don't think it will be. The last one purely because of cash, as you said. They've got two on the schedule for 2027 and 2031. There's money involved. The TV networks are still prepared to buy the rights for them. So if there's money to be made, the ICC will make it. But I, I guess it's whether that then starts to change shape, whether they, they start to sub in more T20 World Cups instead and that kind of thing and something that makes it easier to get through for a relatively lower cost to actually stage the event in the first place and something that leaves more time in the schedule for more T20 leagues. So with that all said about trying to make the most of the tournament we're watching at the moment, and you might have a different impression of this, Jeff, being there, but it just feels like it's been a bit of a sterile start like it doesn't feel like that joyous celebration that i was referring to before yet mm. i mean you know there's external stuff off the field with you know visas we've seen more reports today of journalists have, have not been able to get into the country fans from pakistan as well we've seen one presenter who, who's uh, elected to leave the country i don't want to get into that in any any meaningful depth because there are so many parts of that story that are not yet clear but still there's that sort of hanging around the tournament, the sense that not all quite right yeah. off the field. And the other challenge has been that the games, with no exception, have been mismatches. I mean, Australia and, and India could have been a thriller had Australia picked up Coley early on, had it been 20 for four. But in the end, India walked that by six wickets with eight 
Obis Despair, and that's been kind of the facsimile. Of, well, I say the facsimile. That's been yeah. the form so far, hasn't it? That chasing teams uh, are doing pretty well, with the exception of uh, South Africa, where they mm. blasted 428 when when batting first. So, yeah, we're, we're yet to have that kind of thrilling finish that made last year's T20 World Cup so exciting from the get-go with those games in, in Hobart and Geelong. But I think the key thing here is short memories uh, about how one-day cricket works because one-day cricket requires patience and that is why administrators don't like it and uh, all of the rest of it. But if, if you think back to it, the 2019 World Cup at the beginning was shit house. It was terrible. There were, there were a bunch of floggings and walkovers. Then there were two weeks of rain where half the games got washed out and half of them were reduced contests. And then mm. only only about three and a half weeks into it, maybe four weeks into it, did it did it start to get going? You know, then you had Sri Lanka come out and knock off England. Uh, you had uh, you had that West Indies New Zealand match that went right down to the end where where Carlos Brathwaite couldn't quite make it to the hundred. And then you had the Pakistan Afghanistan encounter, and and it started tightening up towards the back end of the tournament. And then it got really gripping. And there's an analogy there, even in watching a one day match where the early stages can seem like it's me. Andering, even that 2019 World Cup final, as, as we've said, at halfway during that game, people are saying, oh, this is all a bit drab, you know, 241, poking the ball around, and 50 overs later, it's the best game ever played, by the judgment of the same people who thought the first half sucked. So I think a one-day tournament plays out in the same day as a one-day match, that it takes a long time to see any particular context, um, and if we're expecting to get immediate sugar hit gratification from the opening stages, then that's going against the entire history of the format and the event. Yeah, that's that's fair. That's fair. Uh, yeah, I, I guess it just had there was one thrilling game. Yeah, you mm. probably if you're to ratio how many one day games go to say the final five yeah. overs or the final three overs, it might be like one in five or, or one in ten. We're yeah. kind of due, right? We're due something that's uh, that's going to uh, you know elevate the tournament at some point, but yet to have it as yet. And as I say before, I think it doesn't help that even little things that in isolation can be explained away, but the crowd numbers that I'm debating the first game, it clearly should have been. India hosting the first game of the tournament against Australia at Chennai, which even that, I mean, you were there, Jeff, that wasn't sold out either. Well, it was on paper, but there were still, according to reports, 5,000 seats yeah. that weren't occupied. It, it was That's a classic, common criticism. It, it was your classic, um, yeah, all seats are accounted for, but a bunch of people don't turn up because I think because there are so many freebies given out in tranches to so yes. many stakeholders, and particularly in this country, as Barrett explained on the show a, a few weeks ago, that everybody wants their chunk of free tickets, you know, every, every corporate association, every um, police association, every <laughs> bunch of sponsors, whatever, they all want their seats but they don't necessarily use them or they don't necessarily use them for more than five minutes because they're busy, you know, uh, networking or whatever it is that people do at these kind of games. So, yeah, there, there's a, there, are, there are rules for one group of people and rules for others. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's the point I was going to make, that every Olympic Games, the same criticism flows uh, through the press when um, there aren't all the seats occupied. I remember London 2012, it was the Olympic family uh, that got criticised because there's an allocation that gets exhausted when, say, there's the 100 metres final on or something like that. But if it's a you know a, a pool game of badminton, it's improbable those seats will be taken and the punters aren't able to, to sit in mm. those. So th- there is there is a there is a qualifier there, but but still, yeah, it, it's just a it's a tournament in need of a spark, and hopefully, it's got time to recover that across six and a half weeks. 
The real big question that I've got for you, Jeff, is how on earth have England fucked up their uniform? There was the official team photo yesterday, which, you know, as usual, a frustration of mine in team photos is they they tend to be wearing trainers and not their cricket boots, which means you get a whole variety of, you know, trainers and, and so on and different coloured shoes in the front row. But the real question is how is it possible that there are two distinct shirts within one squad, the small England or the big England? I'm not sure whether we've had this question answered yet, but it, it's uh, it's an unusual thing for a uniform to not be uniform. Well, maybe it's just um, the ECB finally being honest about the missing part of their acronym and they're like, well, the big England is England and the small England is Wales, who we don't <laughs> actually respect enough to give them a W, but, you know, oh, no, they're included. Yeah, yeah, they're totally included. Yeah, yeah it's fine. Yeah, sure, it's, yeah, sure, the Scots are separate. And, yeah, sure, the, you know, Northern Ireland's doing its thing with Ireland o- over the sea. But, yeah, no, Wales. Yeah, England and Wales. Oh, the England and Wales cricket board, ECB. Big one on the shirt, small one on the shirt. Uh, some a uh, good news external uh, to the World Cup, but kind of related. Uh, the Olympic Games has reached that next step. That, if I understand this correctly, mm. Jeff, we were expecting about a month ago. So this is the point where the organisers of the Los Angeles Olympic Games in 2028 have recommended to the IOC that cricket, among five other sports, be mm. included for that Olympic Games. So that's been welcomed by Greg Barclay, who's the the chairman of the ICC. That. Cricket's been recommended, and according to the newspaper reports that came from this, the IOC, which is in session at the moment, mm. tick off on that, and it feels like that's a formality. So, yeah, cricket in the Olympics uh, just five years from now. So there'll be players in this tournament who, in their career span, get the chance to you know walk out in a, an Olympic opening ceremony, which is a, which is going to, as mm. we said a few weeks ago, be an incentive, I think, for some players to choose country over franchise because. There's something special about the Olympics, even if it's not been something we've been conditioned to too much in our sport. I think this is what they call in administrative talk third base. Um, so the you know the IOC is slipping into a bathrobe at the moment, and and then you know it seems pretty clear how the evening's going to unfold. Um, although there's still time for for a change of mind or for for something to go awry. But yeah, it's probably going to happen. You know, Greg Barclay's released a statement, the ICC chairman, about it, saying that they're they're very happy that LA28 have recommended cricket for inclusion in the Olympics. What he didn't say and what I hope is true is that it'll be a celebration of cricket as a sport. We can only hope <laughs> that that is something that comes to bear. But, yeah, it, it is it is significant because you, you play in these team sports that are outside the Olympic tent and you do get the sense that those players are looking in wistfully at Olympics time and thinking, well, it'd be nice to be in there. And then, you know, football gets in there and hockey gets in there and sort of team sports come and go and baseball or softball have a go. And for for cricketers, it'll it'll be nice for at least a few of them to get a shot at it. My understanding is it's going to be a six-team thing, though, which seems pretty tokenistic, but what are you going to do? Yeah, I think it's going to be eight teams, but we'll learn more in the coming days. Who knows? It might be that cricket needs to go to third base for the IOC to get this over the line. Couldn't Mm. rule it out given what the IOC is required of um, their different stakeholders uh, across the journey. MCC, uh, just quickly on the dickheads from day five in the pavilion uh, during the Ashes Test match. This got released just after we recorded the weekly show last week. So the panel decision has been released that um, there is a life ban in there. One member has been actually kicked out and two others are now serving lengthy bans. They've gone through their internal appeal process. So that's that. It's a fairly big call because it'll piss a lot of people off, but a necessary one. And I think it Mm. kind of shows the MCC mean business as far as trying to present to the wider cricketing world that they're not going to let members of theirs who are in a privileged position 
act in a way that makes them the focus of attention for all the wrong reasons, as we saw uh, in the long room that day and on the stairs of the up to lunch and so on. Yeah, the the Marlebone MCC, not the Melbourne one, or the Madras Cricket Club, which was at the far end of um, the ground in Chennai, where we were um, commentating the game a few days ago. This one, this one's interesting, right? Uh, yep. Okay. Great. I'm I'm glad that they've instituted some significant bans. The the, the suspensions for the other uh, couple of members are several years apiece. So uh, that's not for nothing. I, I still think looking at those clips, there are not three people involved in in what's going on there, and I, I, I'm still not sure how they didn't find anything else to follow up about any other person who was in the room that day, where there were dozens of people acting like pillocks. But uh, you know, the, whatever, presumably the most egregious examples of it were the ones that have been met with this action. At least something has happened, but I think there's still a pretty big question mark over that. Yeah, well, to sort of butcher an old analogy, you know, punish one, teach eighteen and a half thousand. Uh, yeah, you know, this might be, um, this might be a way of just yeah you know, reinforcing the responsibility that you have when you're in a in in such close proximity to players, which isn't mm. something that members from other clubs get to do around the world, where security is heightened. There's a there's an exception made at Lords, and that comes with with responsibility. Jeff, jumping back to Australia to end segment one before we go to Nerd Pledge and so on. The Australian women. We're playing West Indies in the third T20 just after we recorded last week. It was a bit of an anticlimax. So two brilliant games. Then Australia flogged the Windies at AB Field in the third encounter, remembering that mm. the Windies chased down 218, I think it was, with Hayley Matthews making a century in the second game. So Australia... 190 for nine at AB Field in Brisbane. Talia McGrath, what a player. 65 from 34. Elise Perry, 40 from 30. Phoebe Litchfield, 36 from 17. A bit of a coming-of-age series for the for the teenager. Shamelia Connell took three for, for the Windies and they were bowled out. Inside, there are a lot of overs for 143. It was Matthews again, player of the series. I think she broke the record for the most runs ever in a bilateral uh, T20 series. Mm -hmm. 79 from 40 to go with her 99 not out and their 130 in the second game. Darcy Brown took a three for Ash Gardner, three as well, and Kim Garth two for 24. So yeah, that that's quite the, quite the individual performance from Matthews, but ultimately in a, in a two, one series loss, I, I should say for the Windies. Quite the performance on the back of quite the performance on the back of quite the performance swampy Sir Swamp thing. The great Twitter statistician tracked that uh, that was eight times in a row that Hayley Matthews was player of the match in the last eight West Indies T20 internationals. So, yeah. so which is which was already a record when she was at about four, three or four. I think <laughs> nobody had done before. She's carried it on to eight, and the streak is unbroken. She could still do it again. So, player of the match in all three fixtures in the series, even though they lost two of them, which is a, a pretty fair effort in itself. You know, as per sort of Norm Smith voting or whatever it is, it very rarely goes your way if you're on the losing side. Cricket is mm. no exception to that. They're always boring. You know, seventy on the winning side beats um, eighty on the losing side most of the time, and, and you know, seventy runs always beats three or four wickets because runs are more important apparently. But yeah, she's she's got the gong eight times in a row. Over 300 runs across the series. Um, the Swamp's other stat was that Aaron Finch in 2018, presumably when he made the giant 100 in Zimbabwe, is the only other yep. player to have made more than 300 runs across three consecutive T20 internationals. So, yeah, just a, a huge, huge effort. And here's hoping she can carry it on, but um, she needs some support of that team as well. Yeah, it's such a shame that she wasn't available for the first one day, which was also in Brisbane on Sunday. And this was a, a total mismatch. So Matthews picked up a quad injury in that third performance. Uh, so she wasn't Carrying there. Carrying all her trophies. They, had, they were too heavy. Yeah, 
carrying the team on her back as well. They were all out for 83 in just 27 and a half overs. Kim Garth, three for eights. Wareham and Gardner, two apiece. And Megan Shoot, brilliant figures. Five overs, three maidens, one for six with the new ball in Australia. Chase that down inside 15 overs for the loss of two wickets. Healy, 38. And Perry, 20 not out the old firm there, who always do it for Australia. Yeah, it's a shame that on a Sunday afternoon, a game that was well attended was all over before what even would have been the halfway mark had things gone in the usual fashion. So they've got two more one-dayers in Melbourne later this week. On Thursday, uh, the first of those at the Junction Oval, there's a 50-year reunion of the Australian team that went to the 1973 Women's World Cup in England. So there are 11 surviving members of that squad, including uh, Sharon Treadray, the superstar of that group, who was elevated to... um, Hall of Fame status by Cricket Australia a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's a a really nice thing to be put together, particularly with a a World Cup happening at the same time. And um, 1973, as people point out all the time, they beat the men to it by a couple of years in in staging the first Cricket World Cup. And it was a a curious and idiosyncratic affair at the time. We've talked about it quite a bit on Storytime, some of the teams that were put together for that particular encounter. But they've managed to continue having World Cups on that roughly quadrennial basis with a little bit of tweaking around here and there ever since. All right, Jeff, before we uh, get to our interview and our longer conversation after the break, we have time for some... Um, no pledge. No pledge. The great fun game that we like to play with the people who listen to this show and the ones who decide to fund this program by sending in contributions of a currency that amounts to a strange number, an unusual number, a number you wouldn't necessarily expect to find on a note or a coin because that number relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what it means. Tom Sloan is our nerd pledger, a first-time caller, don't know if he's a long-time listener, Two pounds and six pence. So 206 is the number. We can interpret that in any way we want. Tom, if you sent me a clue, I couldn't find it. You don't have to. It might just be a free hit. So I've treated it as such, Adam. Although the first thing that came to mind, which I won't go into great depth on, was Dinesh Chandamal's 206 last year in the second test at Gaul, which you'll remember well when he was barrelling Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins into the road outside the stadium, taking out passers by while everything was absolutely being turned upside down outside the ground. Yeah, when he popped Stark basically into the fort twice in two balls to move to uh, 200 and, and that great celebration in front of the Cricketers Club there where our commentary position was, it was um, yeah one of the, the highlights of last year for what we were able to see around the world. Chandy Mal, who, you know, is one of those cricketers who will probably always carry the tag as having underperformed as a Sri Lankan player relative to his ability, but um, to do it against Australia and to lead them to victory the same week the, the protests were going on across Sri Lanka, having fought back, having had a bad day one, and, yeah, him, him steering them to that, that victory inside four days was pretty special. Well, um, instead of that, I thought, given that I gave Surav Ganguly a bit of a drive-by on the pod, uh, was it yesterday for the incredibly mm. trashy TV ads that he's appearing in that I see every three and a half minutes while trying to watch matches in India? I thought I might come back to him because Surav Ganguly is Indian Test Cap 206. Thus, Tom, you've given me a way in. But it's more about I was thinking about him in, in one-day terms because he, Surav Ganguly gets gets sort of shuffled to the back of the, the pack of the great that great Indian batting contingent where you've got Tendulkar, Dravid, Lakshman, Sawak who comes along, along a little bit later but still very much 
during Ganguly's era, um, but he's he's remembered more as the captain, as the leader, than as the player, right? Because he's he's the one who's got the attitude, who comes in and says, "We're not going to be pushed around anymore. We're we're going to stick up for ourselves and bite back and be feisty and, and do all of the things that he's he's renowned for for having that streak of arrogance to say that he he wasn't going to take anything from anybody that he wasn't prepared to to work with. But then I was just thinking about him as a player and I thought he's worth talking about as a player because I do have these great memories of watching Ganguly bat during those years and just that you've got your graceful left-handers, but he was a really powerful left-hander. You remember the way he'd kind of crack the ball through the covers, that sort of angled bat um, or behind point or through cover. And I remember him belting it down the ground that century that he made at Brisbane in 2003 was it the start of that yep. series when they got they got rained out and, and and even that felt like a really important statement for India in that series that we've come here we've come to Brisbane where we normally struggle but we're not going to get pushed around here either yeah there's the early hundred at Lords there's the way he played against Australia at Delhi in 1996 as a younger man in the side it's possible that was his debut although I think about it now i reckon he debuted a couple of years earlier than that even like just the way he was competitive as a bowler 98 the border gavaska series had to take the new ball at different points picked up mark taylor i remember um in in one spell off the top. 2001 and, as well he took the new ball on a couple of occasions right so he, he just loved being in the scrap and i think he was a bit of a pantomime villain for australian fans in the usual way because he kind of played in that air quotes australian way mm. um yeah and that and that at times uh, went too far. I mean, there's the half volley he claimed it slipped in the 2003 World Cup final. For those who hated Ganguly, they were always able to point to that. But, yeah, to me, it's no surprise that he's gone on to be a power broker uh, and had this success, you know, controlling or pulling the strings at Indian cricket at different times due to the esteem he's held in Dada, uh, as they say, which um, mm. I always think of when... Um, well, I used to think, oh, Peggy's not quite saying dada yet. But when Winnie said dada before it was a more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, more, more, more assertive dad, I think yep. of Sarav Ganguly. Um, so, yeah. yes, my daughter made me think of Sarav Ganguly. Shows <laughs> how my brain's hardwired or misfiring, as it were. You're like, why, yes, it is a good time to think about the feats and performances of Sarav Ganguly. Thank you, Winnie, <laughs> for that reminder. Um, I was just, I was thinking about him in terms of ODIs because that's where he lives in my memory. He's in the blue shirt right. rather than the whites, even though he, you know, yeah, he made 16 test tons and, um, had a very distinguished career, but 22 one-day hundreds. He's still ninth all-time for one-day runs, 11,363. Yep. I mean, huge career, 311 games. It's only about 20 players who played more than 300. 196s in one-day cricket, so he's still top 10 all-time for sixes hit. And 1,122 fours, so he's ninth overall for boundaries struck in one-day international cricket. There are only 13 players who hit more than 1,000. So he's right, right up up there in, in that, that one-day glut where they're playing a lot of it and he's able to, to consistently contribute. I wonder how many of those sixes ended up. What's the River at Somerset? The um, to, uh, to, uh, Torn, River Ton? Taunton? Is that it? I got that right? Is it? Is it a? might be the River Ton. Is it a T-O-N? Is, the river to, is it the Ton? I, I feel like it's got something to do with Taunton. Mm. as in the name of it. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll get yelled at by Somerset supporters for not mm. having that right immediately. They're a feisty bunch. But, yeah, he and Dravid putting on that huge partnership when they pongo Sri Lanka in that tournament. Um, mm. They didn't play a lot of one-day cricket there then, but, yeah, that, that's a memorable appearance in a World Cup where India ultimately didn't make the most of what they had on the park and uh, were eliminated by Australia at Super 6 stage. Mm. But, um, yeah, they, they, were, they were a hell of a group. 
Well, he made 183 in that game. He was out second last ball of the innings, so not quite close enough to try to become the first man to make a double hundred in 50 over cricket, but made 97 against South Africa in that tournament as well. He's under the captaincy of Azaruddin then, and in the 2007 World Cup, he's under the captaincy of Dravid, but he captains the one in the middle, 2003, when they make the final and get ambushed by that very good Australian team, Ponting and, and Martin, take them apart. Mm. But they're a, they're a very good side that gets there in the way that, that Tendulkar rides that wave through that World Cup to that point and, and how crucial his wicket is. But, you know, Ganguly's got a fair bit to do with that. And that's that's the other bit of how I think of him. He's in partnership with Tendulkar because they're still the biggest partnership in all one-day cricket history. So 8,227 right. runs they made together batting together in the middle, which is just a staggering number, mm. average of 47 mm. for those partnerships. Between 1992 and 2007, Tendulkar and Ganguly were batting together in one-day cricket. A lot of that was at the top of the order, but it wasn't all as an opening partnership, but 6,609 of those runs were as openers. So, I mean, it's unbelievable. So for all partnerships, they've got well over 2,000 more runs than the next best, which is Sangakara and Jaya Wardner, who, you know, when we were speaking to Sangakara a couple of weeks ago, it was all about how huge that, that relationship was and how much they played together. Well, you know, these guys added another 2,500 runs on top of that. Um, he's also got the 10th biggest partnership in one-day history with Dravid, 4,363 runs there. So, yeah, 6,500 as an opening combination, which is 1,500 ahead of Gilchrist and Hayden. He put on 26-century stands with Tendulkar. And, yeah, just always had that kind of Prince of Calcutta thing going on where he was regal and up himself and, and cocky and whether he was you know getting involved in sacking Greg Chappell or getting involved in administration afterwards, you know, ends up running the BCCI for a while. Funnily enough, part of... I was, I was reading up on the history of how he got booted out of that job and, and partly it was to do with doing shithouse ads on television. <laughs> like, they oh, got really? mad. Yeah, they got mad that they were like, this is embarrassing that you're endorsing all of these crap products and he did a run of, ad, of ads for some gambling company and apparently that was used against him in the meeting. But I think there was a fair bit more to it than that. There was there were complaints that he was interfering in selection but there was also a fair bit to do with which political party you belonged to and which one you were prepared to sign up to be part of and which ones backed the other people who were the other power brokers in the room. And also that he had a close relationship with Shashank Manahar who... Who was who was running had the the key job at the ICC at the point where they said, well, okay, maybe India shouldn't get all the money, um, which lasted for a few years. But now that Manahar's out of that job, that position has been reversed. So yeah, proximity <laughs> to Shashank Manahar might not have helped him at the the top table when they decided to give him the boot. Um, but that's that's the a very brief overview of the long and eventful life of um, of of Dada, who when he paid tribute to in the great knowledge that she had of the Prince of Kolkata. Brilliant. Uh, thank you, Jeff, and thank you to our pleasure today, Tim Sloan. Make that Tom Sloan. I played cricket with a bloke called Tim Sloan when I was younger. Must oh. be on the mind. Right, that's it. That's segment one done. When we return, we'll have Louis Cameron with us talk about the Sheffield Shield, the Mercantile Mutual Cup, and a bloke called Fraser McGurk. This is Jeremy Coney. And I'm on the final word. It's Final Word Cricket Podcast. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon with us for a chat about Australian men's domestic cricket, which, you know what, Jeff, sometimes we don't do enough of this. We, we, we 
go through the box scores. We talk about the highlights, but due to the sheer volume of games in the county championship, we often spend more time discussing that tournament than we do the Sheffield Shield and, and the Marsh Cup and, and other parts of domestic cricket like the Big Bash. But we're going to try and make amends this year. And what better way of doing that than bringing in guncricket.com.au journalist, colleague on SEN Test Cricket when he's with us on tour, a former Victorian quick as well. Louis Cameron, hello to you. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Adam. I probably should have said Adam first because you were the one talking to me, Adam, but no, no. I got, got your names both right. Nice to he meet gets you enough. both. He gets enough of the limelight. That's fine. <laughs> it's a Lennon-McCartney vibes, right? Who, who should be first? Who should be second? This is how the relationship's going to fall apart. It'll be, you've sown the seeds. He'll be like, remember that day when fucking Louis Cameron said your name before mine? It's all going to fall apart from here. You're the Yoko of this relationship. I was going to say exactly the same thing. Louis is going to come in and Yoko, I know the whole thing. And, you know, it'll, will it be he and I in bed together for several days at a time so. or you and Louis? I don't know. I hope, I hope, <laughs> however it happens, I hope that whoever it is has a great time. Uh, Louis, I, I mentioned your, your credentials, if you like, uh, coming into this. You, you have a particular focus on domestic cricket when you're not covering the Aussie men's side. You'll be heading out to India to do the World Cup in a couple of weeks, though. So you'll be back where you were earlier this year. We'll just start there. You're looking forward to getting back on the road? You know what? In a funny way, I am. Like we we all spent six weeks in India early this year, and that was my first time over there. And at the it was great, but at the time I was like, I've had enough of India. I don't want to go back. And then you know you're away for a bit, and you know you're at home, and you're just kind of twiddling your thumbs, and you the, I don't know the road calls, and you're like, yeah, I want to do it again. So negotiated a nice little one with Jack Painter, who's normally doing the domestic stuff for us back home. Uh, he's done the first half of the World Cup and then I'm going to super sub in for him for mm. the second half. You're going to Michael Clark him. He's the George Bailey who's, you know, studiously <laughs> does the work, does the hard bits, gets you to the tournament and then you just say, oh, thanks, I'll take it from here, champ. Just pop the orange vest on if you wouldn't mind <laughs> and run me some drinks for the rest of the tournament. Thanks, buddy. As long as as long as people don't start questioning, I remember George Bailey. There was a, I think there was some talk at that uh, 2015 World Cup that he might replace Mike Clark, that he might be a better option. So, um, I think when people see Jack's copy, they'll probably think that. So, mm. don't let him uh, take away take it away too soon. Let's get into the uh, the main reason we have you on today, Louis. And by the way, you have been on before because you featured uh, Jeff. Uh, will color in the. I was going to bring this up. <laughs> it, it was the story time we did on the roof with seven co-hosts mm. after the indoor test match finished early. Does that sound about right. right to you, Jeff? Yeah, it was an outdoor podcast then, for an indoor test. Right, and then Louis had a beer thrown at him by mm. Matt Clemo with some force, and the grab you took ended up featuring as our social media video that week, Lou. So you have got experience in these parts. Yeah, a friendlier welcome this time, I've, I've noticed. It's probably the best catch I've ever taken. <laughs> uh, so over the weekend, there, there was Sheffield Shield cricket, but there was also the 50-over Marsh Cup. Jeff and I were were moaning last week, mostly me, that there was a time when the, the domestic 50-over comp all front-loaded at the start of the season had a bit of a, a festival vibe of, about it roughly a decade ago. Not quite so much these days. It sort of struggles to get any traction, but boy, oh boy, uh, Jake Fraser-McGurk, a 29-ball century for his new state South Australia against Tassie on Sunday certainly achieved that. I woke up to all of the tweets and messages and, and so on on the freeway there at um, Karen Rolton Oval. This is a guy who I watched play for Victoria in Shield cricket as a 17-year-old. Looked like such an accomplished, technically correct player to start with. Uh, and I think it was like a, a half century that took him three hours to compile or something like that. But as is the way with a lot of young modern players, Louis, he's got the ability to do extraordinary things with all the tricks. 29 balls. I mean, it's just incredible to think that, um, you know, A.B. de Villiers' best was, was 31. It was it was pretty incredible. And it's, I mean, it's an interesting one with the Marsh Cup. I mean, you know, you guys cover a lot of English cricket and, and it seems like that 
competition there equivalent with what bank is it named after these days? Metro Bank or whatever Everyone's it is. Like mm, it's, mm. They go through all the yeah, every, every yeah, financial that, institution gets, gets to go. go. Yeah, it's most socialist uh, financial kind of. Anyway, that's a different. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, over there, it's really pushed to the margins and none of these guys play. And it's kind of, it's a little bit like that in Australia too. I mean, one of the things, I am employed by Cricket Australia, so I've probably got to give their side of the, the coin. But I think one of the good things they did was to give, they listened to players who wanted the games to be inter, interlaced between the Sheffield Shield games. That was really strong from a lot of domestic guys saying that, you know, we want these games. We don't want it at the start of the season. It kind of feels like, I think even Pat Howard at one point called it the pre-season cup and they wanted mm, yeah, to, to kind of give it a bit of extra importance. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Four day. It was a four night, four day. Five day, five night, mate. Don't you forget it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joke for two, that one. So uh, the Marsh Cup, it's, you know, and and something like this just kind of brings it to the fore in the middle of a World Cup and it was incredible uh, the, the way he batted and only his, um, you know, second or third game for South Australia mm. as well. And, I mean, South Australia, in the end, they dogged it, right, because they should have. So Tassie made um, 435 for nine down, Nick Jewell 90, Jordan Silk 116, few 30s and 40s, 27 extras help. And then South Australia, they nearly chased it, but they should have chased it. They're all out for 398. But there's a point where just before Jake Lehman gets out, they're 339 for three. They need 96 from 87 balls and they managed to lose it from there. So you'd be feeling a little bit salty if you were the chook, um, if you were Fraser McGurk after what he's done, which isn't just sort of the 100 in 29 balls. It's 125 off 38 by the time he gets out. Um, <laughs> Rick Finlay said the only faster list day century in terms of strike rate across the whole innings is that De Villiers one where, yeah, he gets the 131 balls, but then he goes on to 105. 49 off whatever it is 40 something I mean it, it's it, like he, he actually goes faster through the the last 50 or so of of that innings than he did up until that point so the second fastest hundred across the innings on record I mean and, and he's just moved states as well which is interesting that's that's the most interesting bit for me he's been at Victoria he's been noted as an up-and-comer someone who had a lot of talent and potential and then he's shifted locations you know what's your sense of the story behind that yeah, well, I think Victoria got a little bit frustrated with him and it wasn't, you know, a case of them chucking him out the door completely. I think basically how it played out was they offered him, he'd been on a full contract and he, he had been since he was 17 or 18, as Jeff, as Jeff, as um, Adam mentioned off the top. You know, he debuted in the Shield really early and had a lot of success and then he just probably wore out his welcome a little bit with some of the ways he was getting out and he probably needed a bit of a, a kick up the backside. So they didn't throw him out completely like they did, I think, have the rookie uh, contract on the table, but South Australia came in with a with a full contract, more money, you know, probably more playing opportunities and that's kind of what you need sometimes, more security, exactly right. For a 21-year-old who, you know, has, has lived in Melbourne, I, I, there were kind of stories about him parking his car with a custom license plate that might have been his initials followed by his number uh, and, you know, on, on an expensive car and that kind of, you know, that, that just uh, ruffled a few feathers and, and people noticed it and that kind of thing, you know, around the Are you saying an 18-year-old so behaved in an impetuous and slightly showy <laughs> way? I, I mean, it must be the only one. Incre really stand out to be the only 18-year-old who's suddenly come into a bunch of money uh, behaving in that way. And it's unfair to characterise him in that way as well because I think back to when he was a 17-year-old debuting in the Shield and I was there at the MCG and we interviewed him. He'd made a brilliant 50 mm. um, and he just 
struck you and yeah he was you know a 17 year old kid and everything was happening quickly for him but I remember just thinking this is a lovely kid I hope he does well I don't know if he will but I, I really does really do kind of hope that that he does well uh, it's an interesting case study for Australian cricket I think because it's the kind of innings that can make a career and it's the kind of innings that you'd think t10 competitions in in you know Abu Dhabi and, and these kind of places will come knocking and go well you know here's some here's some money to come play in our tournaments I think what Australian – I don't think he wants to do that. I think he's kind of talked about – he had a, a good interview with um, with Dan Brady, I saw, and, and one with Andrew Ramsey on our side as well. And all indications are that he wants to play Sheffield Shield and that was part of the reason he moved to South Australia as well. So, you know, if if you're looking at it coldly, like you just tell him, get find Tim David's power hitting coach and go and do that and, you know, figure out because – you know, figure out T20 cricket because red ball cricket's hard. But you know, I guess I guess this is the thing that people like about Australian domestic cricket is there there is still that kind of respect for the shield. Yeah, there's that predicament for a lot of modern players to they double down on, on the white ball stuff and shelve red ball cricket altogether. It it reminded me, and you were probably with the Vicks at the time, I reckon, Louis, when Glenn Maxwell hit like a twenty ball fifty in the was it the Ryobi Cup at the time uh, down at Hobart? And he just, the, the way the ball sounded off the bat, I've watched that YouTube at different points when preparing stuff with Glenn, that, you know, that he has that thing about him, McGurk, Fraser McGurk rather. And, and and with Maxwell coming towards the end of his international career, I mean, I think he'll be part of that cohort who see this 50 over World Cup and, and the 20 over World Cup in the Caribbean and America next year is not a bad time to jump off the merry-go-round, I would imagine. And if that were the case, someone like Fraser McGurk will always be remembered as the guy that who can do this thing and he might just jump the queue. He's, he's a way off there yet, I'd say. And, you know, I mean, interesting comparison because Glenn Maxwell was really early in his career as well when he hit that 19 ball 50, which I think mm-hmm. McGurk broke that record um, right. as one of, the, one of the many along the way the other day in um, that Karen Rolton Oval. I guess a bit different as well. He's batting right at the top of the order. He bats at six for South Australia in the Sheffield Shield. So that's kind of the the kind of Travis Head mould where he's in the middle order for red ball stuff and then then up for the white ball gear. But he needs to do it. He needs to do it a few more times before he's around the mark for Australia. But, you know, they'll have, uh, wouldn't have gone unnoticed, that's for sure. Just moving off Fraser McGurk into the wider uh, conversation. So just quickly, there were two other Marsh Cup games played over the weekend. The Vicks playing uh, WA. Uh, they were bowled out at the Wacker for 107, which was effectively what happened in the Shield game as well, which we'll come to in a sec with Richardson, Morris, Berendorf, AJ Ty, the only four bowlers needed for WA. Interesting that Ty's playing despite having given up his contract at the end of last season. Then Short and Whiteman were not out. They win it four down. Then a thrilling game between New South Wales and, and Queensland, Louis, uh, where a final wicket partnership of an absolute shitload got Queensland over the line against their old rivals. Down and out for all money and coming off a disappointing week as well in the Sheffield Shield where they really should have lost that game if it wasn't for um, Pearson and Nisa, a couple of old stages, digging in and, and kind of making sure they hung on for the draw. But it looked like they were going to lose by an innings at one point. Uh, and then it looked like they were going to lose with a bonus point, uh, you know, handing over a bonus point to New South Wales in the in the Marsh Cup when they needed 70 more to win when Sandu and Richardson came together. Crazily, I'm not actually 100% sure whether it happened, but at one stage, it looked like Queensland were also going to get the bonus point because they were going to get it under 40 overs. I actually didn't mm. check in the end whether they did get it under 40 overs, but um, kind of just it was a crazy partnership. And the, the, actually the best thing, I reckon, from that game, I don't know if you guys saw it, was 
New South Wales had a young debutant, a 20-year-old fast bowler called Jack Nisbet, and in his, his first over, he got absolutely smashed for six by Ben McDermott, and the very next ball pitches up a little bit further, gets a nick, and Ben McDermott's played for Australia, mind you, and this guy's bowling his fourth ball in professional cricket. He points to the changing room. Like, he, he's about a metre away from Ben McDermott, and he's pointing at him and showing him where to go. It was it was one of the best. I reckon it was the best thing I saw all weekend. Forget McGurk, forget last week of partnerships. I love that. Classic fast bowling stuff, and no surprise that you would back him in there. So three wickets for him, uh, four for Jack Edwards in that contest, a, a jack off, if you will. And but, but they had him, they had him nine for one hundred and forty six, right, chasing two hundred and seventeen, and then Garinda Sandu forty six not out, Kane Richardson thirty six not out at number eleven um, to bring him home. Why are we watching the World Cup? We should just be watching the Australian domestic competition. That's it. That is quite the slate of games that we saw in terms of all, you know all the runs in the world, all out for one hundred and seven. And the last wicket stand in the third game, this is clearly where the best 50 over cricket in the world is happening. 100%. I just looked it up. They did get the bonus point in the end. So you win by a wicket and you get a bonus point for winning inside 50 overs. So um, <laughs> it's great to see Marsh Cup getting its uh, its due chocolates. It's like rugby union. I saw it there, World Cup, the other day. I, of course, have a little understanding of, of the sport or anything like that, but um, being from this side of the brassy line. But uh, you get a bonus point if you lose inside a try, I think it is. So the Wallabies were punted on the basis that Fiji got a bonus point for losing by one point, which strikes me as bizarre. But anyway, I think what we do next here, Louis, is we go through the three Shield games from last week. But in doing so, we talk about how each state will be setting up for season 23-24. Your website, cricket.com.au, published six excellent previews. So I'm going to shamelessly say that most of my research comes from them and you can read the articles in full at the place where you work. So there was a replay of last year's final, indeed the last two finals, Victoria playing at the Wacker against WA. We already said they lost the the Marsh Cup game, but they were torn apart in the Shield fixture as well by an innings and 53 runs. Victoria started pretty well. They made 256, which you'd probably take against an attack that includes you know, Aaron Hardy and Corey Rocciccioli. Um, we got that pronunciation right by the end of the season. But yes, they turned it on. WA making 481 in reply. Bancroft 122, which is of interest when you think about how the Australian test lineup might look against the West Indies later in the season. Prodigy Tigwali 94 and a 33 ball 57 for Ashton Turner just to make things doubly difficult for Victoria. When they batted the second time around and they rolled for 172, Mitch Perry top scored with 43 as the night watchman. Rochicioli finishes with six for the match. His figures in the second dig, three for 14 from 26.2 overs with 20 maidens mm. as Victoria tried to hold out for the draw but wasn't to be. With the ball for the Vicks, Bowen Threefer, Sutherland, the new captain Threefer, and Todd Murphy, long day in the dirt, one for 141 from 32, his worst yeah. figures in professional cricket so far. But we won't get too carried away with that. Um, that can happen when you're up against it with scoreboard pressure and all the rest. Test cricket's easy, but um, shield cricket's something else. <laughs> so, Louis, in terms of where the, the states are when we start the season, WA have been a colossus over the last few years in both four-day cricket and and one-day cricket. I mean, they'll have Lance Morris back from that injury that kept him away from England earlier in the year. Jai Richardson presumably will be there soon enough. They got all that experience with Bancroft, Whiteman, the captain, Hilton Cartwright coming into his best cricket of his career last year. Aaron Hardy, who's now an Australian player. We already mentioned Ashton Turner. Joel Paris, who played for Australia A 
through the winter in the four-day stuff. Josh Phillippe, who's near enough to the Australian one-day squad. Um, already mentioned Teague Wiley being a bit of a prodigy. Roger Cioli having his breakout season. I mean, only really are missing Sean Marsh. Other than that, this is basically the side that wins everything every year. He'll be back. He'll be back. Come back. Comeback's coming. You can feel it in the wind. Yeah, I mean, it's... um. I kind of I knew you guys were going to ask me about them, and you probably want to start with them. And I just read, a, you know, I'm not giving our website another plug, but but I am. Um, Adam Burnett wrote a really good piece um, a, a year or two ago. I think actually after the end of last season about why Western Australia is so good, because it's something I've kind of wondered. It's like how how have they gone from 10, 15 years ago when you know that man Sean Marsh was, I think he was skipper, and there were you know, alcohol issues and they just sacked Mickey Arthur and Lockie Stevens didn't last that long and just seemed like they were a basket case. And now they're probably producing, you know, as many, you know, world-class players as New South Wales, which is, you know, five, six, seven times as big in terms of population. And, and reading the piece, the thing that kind of stands out is great leaders. And I know it sounds very Western Australian to kind of say it like that, but it kind of starts with Justin Langer, that man. I mean, he, he put them on the right track. Uh, you know, he the kind of like the Australian team. I think they outgrew him a little bit, and there's some some great bits in that piece that that Adam Burnett wrote about how Adam Voges, um, the guy who took over from from him as a coach, basically kind of had to say, right, all these great things that JL did, we kind of got to stop going back to them. Like that's what it was like under him, and I think it took Voges and and Ashton Turner, who's become a great captain in, in his own right, a year to probably realise that they couldn't keep. Trying to trying to do it, you know, without Langer there. So that's the kind of starting point, and then it helps when you've just got this endless production line of young players. I mean, even the ones coming through now haven't played a, a little bit, um, haven't played quite as much as. I mean, we all know about Aaron Hardy now. He's he's played international cricket, but um, there's a kid Cooper Connolly who would have played in this Shield game. He hurt his toe on a boat in the lead into this. Uh, kind of add that to the the list of weird injuries. I don't know if you guys followed this one but um yeah so he would have played in that shield game i think instead of Jaden goodwin uh but stubbed his toe on a boat or so it must have been worse than that because he, he needed surgery so he had a fantastic a big bash final last year and looks like a really good left arm spinner and and batter t wiley as you mentioned nick hobson um is a really good white ball player i think we'll see a lot, lot of him over the next little bit and roger choley i think you know he's, he's behind murphy and obviously behind line but in terms of right arm off spinners i think he's right up there so they're going to be hard didn't to beat he, again. Did, didn't Richardcioli get taken on a? I feel like he went on a, on an A tour or something like that during the winter. It kind of suggests that they've they've seen him last year and they like him, right? Like, and that can often happen with a younger spinner where they say, you know, we think in like maybe five years time you could be in the mixer. Yeah, and, and he's tall as well, and that's kind of the the one thing that Murphy doesn't have when you're thinking about replacing line, and you know he eventually will, and I think Murphy's a fantastic bowler, but the thing you lose a bit with Murphy is he's just shorter and skittier. Whereas Roger Choley is probably actually even taller than Nathan Lyon. So the, the amount of prospects they have is is kind of scary, really. Victoria, they're kind of deliberately a relatively younger group. They've made the last two Shield finals. Chris Rogers is the coach there. He's he's building that squad, as it were, which is why it seems odd that they let Fraser McGurk go um, or at least gave him the impetus to, to think that he might do that. And, and then, by contrast, a couple of the absolute veterans in the fast bowling with Scott Boland and then Peter Siddle 
coming back. Um, but Sutherland, the captain, young captain, to have that that kind of atmosphere and energy around the team. John Holland's gone, so there's a, another older player, the, the left-arm spinner, who played test cricket for Australia, um, and Nick Maddinson out till Christmas with his ACL operation. So there's there's a I don't know what as you as you run your eye over where they're going, what they're doing, what Chris Rogers is doing. You know, you can go back to that influence that, that Langer had at WA. Does Chris Rogers get an end named after him at the MCG in, in another few years' time, you know, when 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 he's turned that Victorian team into a, a ruthless winning machine. I'm coming at it a slightly different way because you know in Victoria that everything is footy, so you've got to couch it in footy terms, in AFL terms. Yep. I'd say the rebuild is over. Yep. They've almost done – I hate bringing this up with, with Adam on, on, on this podcast, but they've almost kind of had their Hawthorne moment, Hawthorne 2008 <laughs> moment in terms of they made two Shield finals. They didn't win one. They didn't pinch one like – um, Sue Rioli and Stuart you did in 2008. But uh, they, they've kind of overachieved, I guess, with, you know, these guys like Fergus O'Neill and Will Sutherland and uh, and even Murphy. It kind of feels like they're not young anymore. Like Mitch Perry is yep. not a, a young, inexperienced bowler anymore. Fergus O'Neill is not young and inexperienced. Will Sutherland's a, a really good player in his own right. They'll get Matt Short back at some point as well. It's kind of time for them to, you mm. know, to, to give WA a nudge if they do get to the big dance again. Um, Who's the Scott Pendlebury so, of the Victorian squad? You know, that's the big question. Well, I'm not sure if he's got a basketball background, but Peter Siddle, you know, kind of brings that leadership and experience. However, I don't think he's going to play that much this season. I saw that he did play the Marsh Cup game on the weekend, uh, but I think he's kind of – they've almost brought him in as a coach, really, and I think they've kind of made a rule that if Scott Boland's in the team, they're not going to play Siddle in the same team. They don't want him taking a spot of a Sam Elliott or a – uh, there's a young lad from Essendon called Cameron McClure who I overlapped with in my last grade cricket season at Essendon Career Club. And I'd always been the tallest guy at Essendon. And then this kid came in uh, and he, was, he must have been 17, 16 or 17. And I was I was a little bit taller than him, but I thought, oh, like, you know, this guy's going to be a pretty solid, tall, fast bowler. He came back a year later and he, he towered over me. He's six foot nine. And he's played a couple of Shield games now, and he he looks like you know looks like the real deal. So keep an eye out for him. Speaking of height, and you know the sport that you're referring to before, Pete Siddle does love basketball. Wasn't he the number one member at whatever the Melbourne Tigers turned into? I should remember this, but I don't. But he, he and he's big into the NBA, so there is some connection there. And yeah, Siddle signed a two year deal, so he'll play into his forty first year if it if it goes that far alongside yeah those broader coaching responsibilities. Another big guy's Will Sutherland. We we brushed over the fact that he's been made captain of the Shield side. Feels like a nod to the future that they're giving him this responsibility relatively early in his professional journey and. If he's good enough and if he can end up playing for Australia in the fullness of time and, and all the signs point towards that 100 in the Shield final last year, big bag of wickets in that game as well and a very consistent contributor with the ball through season 22-23 that having had years as captain before could only help uh, push his case if and when that generational change comes in the Aussie dressing room. And uh, bowled through a stress fracture in that Sheffield Shield final, which is kind of the bit that you know, you kind of, on the one hand, don't want, but I reckon when, you know, the, the selectors hear about that and, um, you know, a guy like Tony Dodder made Victorian, you know, fast bowler, like, you know, old school kind of tough, they'd, they'd kind of love it. I heard a story about uh, Sutherland during that Shield final that it, basically his back was just rooted and he, you know, he needed to bowl and, you know, 25 overs in a day. And he was suspending himself by his knees on like a chin-up bar in the Wacker gym and basically hanging down like a bat, like a bat would sleep just to like get his back moving in the morning before play 
and then you know who knows what kind of painkillers and and that kind of thing. So his but I think we know his bowling is going to be really good. It's the batting for me that will dictate whether he becomes a a test player or not. Like Victoria, um, you know Victoria batting at six. I kind of thought that might be a spot too high. Um, and then when you're looking if he if he wants to get into the test team, you know maybe seven even might be a touch too high, but. If he can prove he's a legit top six batter, then um, then watch out. New South Wales were hosting Queensland over the weekend next to Silverwater Prison, which is their new home ground. Jeff, the first thing I thought of was Earthboy and uh, Long Loud Hours and uh, the prison escape that he wrote about Earthboy, of course, who who um, has been on the show before and uh, has uh, got the the track that has been our theme music since the start. But yeah, Lucy Duco and John Killick, the, the helicopter prison escape there in 1999. You know, the first thing that came to my mind, Jeff, was... Um, was she there watching Lucy Dudko? Was she there alongside Silverwater Prison watching New South Wales take on Queensland on the weekend? And if not, can we do a final word interview with her at the new New South Wales complex? That's the challenge for us this season. Uh, Red Lucy, as she was known, the Russian, or is she back in Moscow? I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, is she? She did. She did some time, but she didn't do a, a huge amount of. She's not still inside, is she? I don't think. I don't think. She no, is. she did. She did six years. She did six yeah. years for the. Um, I think Killick did longer than that because he yep. was in anyway. Um, when he got put back in, and, and she went to a different prison, obviously, and um, got out in the mid two thousands. So, if she's still in the country, we should track her down. Absolutely, I'm. I'm. I'm into it. So, Queensland and New South Wales. Um, Queensland all out for one hundred and seventy six first time around. Uh, Bryce Street made forty five. Jack Edwards again. There he is, six for thirty six. New South Wales four hundred and forty six. Bunch of runs. Daniel Hughes with a half century. Jack Edwards eighty seven. So just just doing it on both sides of the scorecard. Hayden Kerr made 86 um, and Michael Nisa, as he does, t- took three wickets. Then Queensland, 417 for seven. Nisa Tun, of course. Um, Jimmy Pearson, get him in the Australian side. Where's Jimmy Pearson? I don't care what format. Give him a game. 106. Renshaw, 55. So, you know, they have a draw. Um, the, I'm sure Adam's favourite bit was when Usman Khawaja after the game said, Michael Nisa is Australia's Chris Wokes. You know, well, I guess underrated, swings the ball, does it in both disciplines, doesn't get picked enough. Uh, but yeah, well, Chris Wokes is in the World Cup squad. Michael Nisa should be so lucky. Yeah, I love that. And look, yeah, Queensland are an interesting beast, aren't they? I mean, they weren't too far away last year, largely because Nisa and Steckity kept taking 20 wickets a game between them. Like they were the leading two wicket takers in the comp. Already touched on Ben McDermott in one day cricket. He's back from Tassie, which feels significant given he's been an Australian player over the last couple of years. It's been now, Louis, a decade since Queensland won the one day cup, which feels like a, a long time for a, a state that feels so strong. They would have expected to have had Labashane for this first chunk of Shield cricket. That's now not the case because he's in the World Cup. They do have Kawaja and Renshaw, though. And here's who I wanted to talk about initially because Renshaw's been in a situation like this. A couple of times where at the start of a summer, he can build a case to play for Australia and he, and he kind of botched it. He fluffed his lines both in, I think it was 17, 18 and 18, 19. So um, if Renshaw can start the season well, he could be in the box seat to replace David Warner for those Windies tests, given he's been, you know, in the test squad and in the test side as recently as India this year. And I think they want to see that. Like the fact that they picked him for the India tour early this year on the back of not heaps, like no doubting his potential. And we've all seen glimpses of it at test level that this guy could be a really good player. But you're right, he does have a tendency to score them at the wrong time a little bit at domestic level. He did get a half century in that first Shield game. But when you look around at, at Cameron Bancroft, you know, 122 leading Sheffield Shield run scorer last year, 
people thought that he was unlucky not to get the nod um, uh, over over Renshaw for, in the first place. It was interesting that I mean during the Ashes, Warner actually got. I asked Warner at a press conference. I said, "Who who do you think should should replace you?" And I mean, the the half volley was Marcus Harris. I mean, he was there on the tour with him, mm. and seems to be the one to select as one. But he said Renshaw and spoke glowingly about him. And I don't know if that was you know Dave, you know, has a way of playing games with some of these things sometimes. But I, I tend to think that he probably thought that like he he wouldn't kind of just you know make that up out of nothing. Like it wasn't like he was led into it. So. Renshaw has been given a lot of lot of chances with it. Queensland are an interesting one. They have a nice young batter called Jack Clayton, who I reckon is worth keeping an eye on. You know, it was interesting Ben McDermott didn't play that first Shield game that he's only playing the one days at the moment. Like they kind of got him back, and now I'm not playing him in that middle order. I think he's got potential as a as a red ball player too. The interesting one, and this is a this is a, a curious one from you guys who you know follow the county cricket a little bit. When you've got Kuhneman and Swepson. So it seems like Swepson at the moment is a red ball spinner and Kuhneman's the white ball spinner. I mean, both have genuine, you know, chances of playing test cricket in the next three or four years. And I think Kuhneman, you know, probably just maybe ahead of Swepson on that front. Like I know they don't go back to the um, to the subcontinent for a little bit, but, you know, in the UK, this would be a, a loan thing, right? Like you'd go and get mm. loaned to Lancashire or, you know, Leicestershire, Third Eleven, or, you know, whatever, Worcestershire, whatever it is, and go play there. It kind of feels like Tassie or South Australia, you know, could do with him. Like Kuhneman's a much better bowler than Menenti and, and Jared Freeman. So that's um, that's one of the quirks of Australian cricket, I suppose. But, yeah, do, mm. do you guys kind of think that, that that'd be beneficial? Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's the ongoing argument we've advanced on this podcast. There should be eight Shield teams and include the, the ACT and Northern Territory in order to have more flexibility with the sides, and that would yeah give the chance for a, a player like yeah Kuhneman's the one, isn't it? And he, and he started in the county championship for Durham this year when it was Lyon was going to play there, then Murphy was going to play there. Ended up being Kuhneman, got injured out of the mix because of the back injury and, and so on. But yeah, Swepson finds himself at an interesting point in his career. Had to wait so long for a baggy green. Got one last year in Pakistan. Didn't make the most of that opportunity. They retained him in Sri Lanka, but didn't pick him in India. So it feels like if he's going to have a serious Australian career in the, in the post-Lion world, he's going to have to have a couple of huge shield seasons to get back in front of Murphy again. And that, look, that's good competitive tension, isn't it? And interesting, he, I don't think he had the greatest winter in terms of they gave him a few games with the Australia A games. So they played two against New Zealand in New Zealand, then a couple more against them back in North Queensland. I don't think he set the world on fire. That was kind of the reports coming back and that maybe they were liking Kuhneman a bit more. But it looked like Swepson, you know, I didn't see a whole lot of that game, I've got to admit, but his figures would suggest that, you know, he's bowled pretty tightly, bowling, you know, taking three wickets and going around at three and over. So um I just think there's something about Kerman that I really like, and I, I would have, you know, it's nothing on on Swepson, but I, I would have liked to have seen him around, get a few more goes um, in the lead into the World Cup, because I just think that they hamstrung. This is a, you know, a separate topic, I suppose, but they gave those games to Tanvir Sanger, you know, as the backup spinner, and they've kept him on as a reserve. I mean, Sanger's not going to play. I think he's maybe a year or two away from international cricket anyway. And he's probably not going to play with Zamper in the team. So, mm. you know, Kuhneman's the kind of guy that, okay, right, Agar's, you know, going to have a baby. We know he's a little bit fragile and then he picks up – sorry, fragile is probably the wrong word. We know he's a bit injury prone and then he picks up a calf injury. It would have been great to have given those extra games to Kuhneman, but, you know, there might be a reason they didn't do that. 
New South Wales didn't get a win last year. The traditional powerhouse of Australian cricket, it's only happened twice in 130 years um, that they weren't able to beat anybody over the course of the season. Uh, they've got Greg Shippard as the full-time coach now. How, how important is that and, and where does it leave them in terms of trying to, to build up something? Yeah, new coach and a new stadium. That's exactly what they needed out in, in Sydney. You know, there's not enough stadiums and, and rebuilds and stuff over there. So it's great to see more money being funneled into, um, you know, infrastructure in, in Sydney. It's, you know, really good for the the, you know, the battlers out in, in Homebush. They've only got about eight, you know, eight different cricket grounds to, to play out there. So I'm glad to see that. Glad to see uh, Greg Shippard, who just, you know, he's just the Iceman everywhere he goes, always has success. Um, they already look like a, a more formidable unit, like they should have won this this Shield game. Getting Jackson Bird back is massive. He's a fantastic bowler. I don't know why Tasmania allowed him to go there um, with the profile of some of their bowlers. And they've just, I mean, if you want to touch on their struggles a little bit, like they've just kind of backed the wrong horses in the last few years. Like you look at the guys they've let go, Nathan Ellis, Henry Hunt, Nathan McAndrew, Tim Ward is not a bad player down in Tasmania, Grinder Sandu, Nick Maddinson. These guys are really good players and have all played for Australia or Australia A in the last couple of years. When you look at the guys they put game time into, Jack Edwards, yes, is starting to come good. Um, but, you know, Jason Sanger, Ben Dorshus, Liam Hatcher, uh, Harry, you know, Harry Conway until he left for South Australia. Like they just they haven't, um, you know, Matthew Jilks is another one who just kind of hasn't taken that, that next step. You could even say the same about the captain, right? Curtis Patterson was back to skipper, didn't work out, found himself effectively out of the 11, which is why they've gone back to Moses Henriquez to be, you know, captain this year. You know, Copeland's retired, so I suppose Bird's the the fit there. And and the quirky one with Mickey Edwards, who is another player who's been there and thereabouts for New South Wales, has made the decision to play full-time in England as a pro with Yorkshire. I haven't interviewed him, but I assume that's to try and do something similar to what Daniel Worrell's doing and give himself a chance to, to potentially even qualify for England. Yeah, potentially. He might might have been on the outer there. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. It'd be, be an interesting story to kind of find out exactly why. But yeah, so there's, I mean, there's no issue in terms of producing talent. They're just kind of not harnessing it or or recognising the right ones. But I think they've got a really good man in, in Greg Shepard at the helm. The final Shield game over the weekend was Tasmania. They had a, a good victory over South Australia. The Sackers made 307, a brisk 307, kind of basballed it actually. Lehman, the captain, 115 from 143. Menenti, 71 from 60. Uh, three wickets for Gabe Bell, Lawrence Neal Smith, Mitchell Owen, and Jared Freeman all took two first. Then Tasmania took a pretty healthy first innings lead after making 381. Charlie Joachim, who's now in his early 30s, been around a while, made 110. Jordan Buckingham, Seven for 71 for South Australia. South Australia, the second time around, couldn't hack it, though. They were all out for 157, four for Webster, and three more for Neil Smith and Bell the second time around. Tasmania chased down the 84. They needed three down. The captain, Jordan Silk, unbeaten on 23 at the end. To start with Tasmania, I mean, on paper, they look like they're in all sorts, right? They were bottom of the Marsh Cup last year, second last in the Shield. They lose Siddle and Bird and McDermott and Payne. Ellis is injured at the moment from his last Australian tour in, in India a couple of weeks ago. Matt Wade suspended at the moment, but for whatever reason, uh, they've got enough within them to get over the line in, in round one. And um, look, maybe that, that adversity could bring them closer together. Yeah, I was kicking the tyres around Tasmania in the lead into this game because they've actually got even more injuries than they've kind of let on. So Jake Doran has split the webbing in his finger. So he's their first choice wicketkeeper. Now that Tim Payne's gone, he's another guy who played, I think people don't realise, he actually played most of Tassie's Shield season last year. Now he's a, a breakfast radio host. 
So Doran's the, the number one wicket keeper. He was out. Tim Ward concussed himself in the nets. He's played for Australia A over the mm. over the off season. Riley Meredith did his side in the Marsh Cup game. Stanlake's being managed. Ellis, as you mentioned, he's still on the mend from a, from a groin. Tom Rogers weirdly played for Australia A over the winter. It seems like everyone played for Australia A. Mm. He's in contract with Tassie. It might be. I don't know if that's the first where a guy's played for Australia A and he doesn't hold a state contract. He's got amazing white ball figures and he's, he's a BBL mainstay, but he's, he's also been injured. So they kind of went into the Shield game with Gabe Bell and Lawrence Neal Smith as their two, their only two frontline pace bowlers. I think they played two Shield games in the last two years between them going into that match and both of them did really well. But the guy who won it for him and the guy who's, who's having an amazing season, um, amazing couple of seasons, is Bo Webster. But this mm. guy. I haven't given up on him playing for Australia because I think his batting has gotten better and better across all formats. He's really kind of settled into that role at number five, uh, six. He's in at seven sometimes for for Tasmania. And he bowls off spin and bowls medium pace. So it kind of got lost a bit in the Marsh Cup. Uh, but he was actually the guy who got Fraser McGurk out, bowling off spin around the wicket. Um, pretty brave to bowl off spin to a guy who's just hit a, a 29-ball century, especially when you got the, you know, the, the meds as your backup. But the thing that I loved even before that was that, you know, that shield win, it was kind of in the balance. He came on to bowl and he basically took the last five wickets for Tasmania. He he took four wickets with the ball and he caught the other one at first slip. So he's a, he's a great catcher as well. He just kind of has a way of imposing himself on the contest and he's a big unit too. So he's kind of the full package. The other Tassie player that we'll be watching is Caleb Jewell, who played really well against New Zealand, both at home and away in those Australia A games that you mentioned before. He'd have to be half a chance as well. I know we're saying any opener making runs is half a chance, but Jewell, having been in the Australia A set up, it clearly means the selectors fancy him. And and, and when David Warner goes, there might be a race with three or four of them. And, and Jewell, if he starts well, could be there and thereabouts. Yeah, I like the look of him. I reckon they do too. Um, I don't reckon they would have given him a chance, you know, opening the batting you know, given the competition for those spots, you know, to, to kind of give him that shows, you know, what they're thinking. Alex Malcolm from Craig Info wrote a really nice piece, spoke to him over the winter and gave a lot of credit to Jeff Vaughan for basically rebuilding him as a batter a couple of pre-seasons ago, basically just said that, you know, this guy kind of had all the shots, but, you know, didn't really have the, didn't really know how to score runs. And, um, you know, it was, it was a really good read on what's made him so good. So I think I think he's around the mark, especially if he can continue his, um, his good form. Lawrence Neil Smith is a particular player of interest for this podcast, Louis. Um, his parents are, are big listeners to the show, his mum in particular. Hi, Tamara, if you're listening. He's another New <laughs> South Wales player who's ended up in Tasmania. And uh, so run the rule over Lawrence Neil Smith for us, who took important wickets in both innings in that match. I'm a big Lawrence Neil Smith. I've been following him for, for a couple of seasons. I, I remember he did quite well on debut. I think it was the Wacker when George Bailey was, was still captain and he might have been injured a little bit in the last couple of years in between it, but um, really tall, fast bowler. He, he lived with a really good friend of mine down in down in Hobart, who was um, who was doing the the um, the curating down at Bell Reve Oval, and uh, he gave Lawrence the, the tick of approval as well. So, yeah, big fan of him. Big fan of double-barreled surnames as well. I'm not sure we get enough of those in mm-hmm. um, in cricket, but there's been a real resurgence with Fraser McGurk and and Neil Smith. So, you know, the future's bright for Lawrence. 
Another big fast bowler is Jason Gillespie, his side, South Australia. They've only won one trophy in the last 25 years. I read in that preview on, on your website. That was the one-day cup in 11-12. In but they were the big improvers last season. They were right in the mix for the Shield final until the final fortnight. They made the final of the 50-over Marsh Cup. They've got loads of quicks, right? So Agar, Spence Johnson, I say Agar, the Agar, the other, Wes, um, who's played for Australia now. Brendan Doggett, Harry Conway recruited a couple of years ago, Jordan Buckingham. Also spinners like Ben Menenti, who continues to post good numbers, uh, might play for Italy at some point too, we were hearing last year. Uh, Lloyd Pope, who nobody really knows what Lloyd Pope will end up as a player, but clearly got natural ability as a wrist spinner. They lost uh, Weatherall to Tasmania. We didn't touch on that before, but it does kind of reinforce the importance of Henry Hunt, another one of these openers who's been making considerable runs over the last couple of seasons. And, and the other big in for South Australia off the field with Gillespie, Ryan Harris is back as the assistant coach, the bowling coach there at his original state at South Australia. So they have lost to Tassie week one, but the fundamentals, the foundation looks pretty strong. Especially the bowling, yeah, as you touched on with all those guys. And I think there's going to be genuine competition for spots when when they're all kind of fit and firing. And if they can get Spencer Johnson playing some red ball cricket, that'll be really good. Nathan McAndrew is the one I reckon is going to play some international cricket in the next few years. He's just a, he's just a really honest battling bowler who never has a bad day. Mm. Uh, and he's, he's played a little bit for Warwickshire over the over the winter. He's been around the market for Australia A, which is um, kind of amazing, you know, a really good effort for a guy who left New South Wales pretty late, another guy that, you know, New South Wales let go of, and he's become a real honest toiler for him and, and bats pretty well. So it's it's an interesting one making Jake Lehman the, the skipper. I mean, they're going to be without Trevor's head for most of the season and, and probably Alex Carey too. So Lehman, you know, a guy who's, who's played a lot of domestic cricket, you know, not the, the most flash record, so they kind of need him. He's, he started off the season season pretty well, I should say, with a with a ton. So you know they really need that from him. I mean they went back to a guy like Kelvin Smith for the opening position in the in the first game. I, I was having a look at his numbers. I mean he's averaged twenty over twenty games over the past ten years. Like so he, he debuted quite young, and they're kind of going back to a guy who who goes really well in grade cricket. But that's kind of the um, you know these are the kind of guys they're turning to, and it, you know it doesn't look all that flash when. You, you know, no disrespect to him, but you're going back to a guy who averages 20. So if they can make enough runs, they might be around the mark. But I, I, I kind of tend to think that um, South Australia and Tassie are going to struggle this season. Louis, that is comprehensive from you. I'd expect nothing less. Uh, one of the best analysts uh, on the game in Australia and beyond as well. Uh, from cricket.com.au where people can uh, read your work and uh, listen to your podcast as well, the Unplayable Podcast. Thank you for coming on the final word for a second run. We'll, we'll catch up with you throughout the course of the season. Hey, uh, great to be on, guys. Thanks. G'day, guys. This is Jimmy Neesham. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. All right, final word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon, making our way towards the end of season 15, episode four. Great to have Lou on the show. Jeff, I met with the Tavs yesterday. I neglected to mention them at the start of the show, but we will at the end. We've got a lot going on there. So we're well on the way to recruiting for the Edinburgh Marathon, Half Marathon, 10K for next year. There's going to be a microsite we're going to launch with the Tavs where you can put all your details in. That's not there as yet, but if you want to be part of that, let me know soon. We're going to be organizing some joint hotel book in conjunction with the Lord's Taverners who will be raising money for. That's the final weekend of May next year. So please let me know as soon as you can. And if I haven't been in touch with you yet, 
if you ran last year, believe me, I'm going to recruit you to go again because our goal is to have at least 50 people running in that. We've got a few London Marathon runners as well. That's now closed, so there'll be no more London Marathon, but we have um, lots of opportunities there at Edinburgh. And we've got all sorts of different bits and pieces where we're talking about with the tabs. We're looking at introducing a final word membership that's coming soon. Got some big interviews that we're lining up for the next six weeks as well while I'm still in London, which will be, you know, tabs adjacent. And and, and I'm just going to throw out there that I know two years ago, Jeff, during the pandemic, we said, why don't we organise a cricket trip to Brazil? Why don't we all go to Brazil? And and we said we would try and organise it with the tabs and that went cold because, you know, travel bans and and those types of things. That's an idea which uh, will reach maturity at some point. We've, we've made some progress this week. So again, very, very early stages. But if I said in about 12 months from now, we were going to try and go to Brazil and you were listening to this and you heard that and thought, gee, I wouldn't mind a bit of that for me, uh, playing over there and, well, start thinking about it because in the next month, hopefully, I'll be able to start taking some provisional names and numbers and 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 costing that up. So we've got a, a lot happening in 2024 and much of it focuses around our partnership with the Lord's Tab. So if you haven't as yet, sign up to the newsletter and that's very easy to do. Link in the show notes. If you want to run in May, please do. If you don't want to run, you just want to come, that's fine. Let me know as well. You can be part of the fundraising effort and we'll, can, we'll keep on keeping on. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I might be there if, if you're not going to make me run. Um, but yeah, if, if there's any <laughs> what about the 10K? having to do I, I did think this because I know you, I know for all of the talk about you and not being fit and like, I know that mm. obviously is true. Like I've seen you in the wild. Sure. You run, I've, I know for a fact you can run 5K, right? Like I, you've told me you've run 5K from time yeah, to time. Yeah, I, I could have been lying, uh, but I have, I have run 5K. Yeah, look, I, I, I never ran until probably two years ago and then I came out of the back of the pandemic and was like, I am extremely unfit and this sucks and my mental health is bad. And so I'm going to start doing some level of exercise. And uh, it, it's a really good idea. Turns out all those people who all the, for all those years were like, um, exercise is good for these things. We're right. It is in, in limited doses, you know, regular frequent is good. You, you don't have to do that much. You can just do a little bit. If I, if I run a marathon, my legs will fall off, but, but you know, well, this is the thing we need to get your base level upright. If you can mm. run 5k, you can absolutely run 10 and the 10k is on the Saturday morning. Mm. So you can do the 10k and then come along and we can all come and watch you run the 10k. Right. Can I walk the and back then, five? Can I run the first five? I don't, but my, my, my point, I don't think you'll. I don't think you'll need to. The adrenaline will get to you, and you might run it in. I don't know what a good time is for a ten k. You might run it running very slow, to, slowly towards the end. But sure. you will get there, and we'll celebrate it, and you can be part of the yeah. fundraising effort. All right, look, let's lock it in. You're going to run the ten k on the Saturday. Oh, I'm going to run God. the half marathon on the on the morning and in the afternoon. We'll go and watch the marathon. We'll have some runners there, including Will Palmer, who is um, going to migrate or graduate from 21Ks to, to 42. And that'll all be for our friends at the Tabs. It's mm, a horrible number, 42. Not not a number anyone should do. I, I can the, I, I can run 5Ks in 30 minutes and I nearly died. But if I if I did that, I, then I reckon I'd do 10 in 90 because I'd just be destroyed from the first half. So we're going to have to work out some pacing. Yeah, you'll be the guy at the end who they're they're following behind with the you know the the street sweeper or something like I'm that. I'll be but the Eric the eel of the of the yes. 10k. That'll be me. <laughs> well, well, Matt Jones said this last year. He said he couldn't run. Uh, he he got submitted for the ten. Did the ten. He's doing the half marathon this year, so it's a okay. 
It's all about all about progression and self. Yeah, that's that's not well. enticing. That's the opposite. That that makes me more <laughs> determined to not do it. All right. On that note, I think I'm going to go for a run myself. This has been season 15, episode four of the final word. Thank you for listening. If you like what we do more broadly, patreon.com forward slash the final word. There'll continue to be so many, so many daily shows in the feed between Jeff, myself and our other co-hosts scattered across London and India. There'll be story time on the weekend for we cannot stop. Goodbye. See ya. I had to go about